HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Enjoy food the way nature intended. Alaska Seafood, wild, natural, and sustainable. For more information, visit wildalaskaseafood.com. I'm HRN's Communication Director, Kat Johnson, with a preview of the next episode of Meat and 3, our weekly food news roundup. We're exploring the future of eating animals, and we're going beyond typical meat sources. If you look at the length of human history, we've been eating insects a lot longer than we haven't been in the United States and Western Europe. We're looking at unusual ways to purchase meat. People are like, really? Why would I want to buy that out of a machine? And we introduce you to Frank Reese, a poultry farmer whose traditional farming methods are featured in a new documentary. I'm a fourth-generation farmer in Kansas, and I focus basically all on standard-bred poultry and have my whole life. He's kind of the last one standing with these rarefied breeds that are so important for if we're going to eat chicken and turkey into the future. He's essential. He's a national treasure. Listen to Meat and 3 this week to better understand the history and the future of meat. Available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to The Line. I'm your host, Eli Sussman. Today, my guest is Chef Alex Reich. She has cooked previously in the kitchens of Prune, Tia Pol, Megas, and along with her husband, Eder Montero, she opened El Quinto Pino in 2007, a multi-regional tapas bar located in Chelsea. Then came Chiquito, a Basque restaurant, and still, I believe, the only restaurant in New York City to represent this style of cuisine. Lavara, her Cobble Hill, Brooklyn restaurant, offers an exploration of Southern Spanish cuisine and harnesses some of the flavors from Jewish and Moorish influences. Lavara holds a Michelin star. She has been nominated for a James Beard Award every single year since 2013. She's been in the business a very long time along with her husband, and she's been in New York uh, working in many kitchens, and we're excited to talk about all of those today. Chef, welcome to the program. Thank you. I want to start with your parents and Argentina. Uh, did, did you uh, move here from Argentina? Were you born in the United States? How did your parents end up being in uh, this country? My parents uh, came to this country in 1968 with a baby that was not me. It was my older sister. Um, and um, I was born in Chicago. 
And they ended up here because my dad was doing a fellowship, actually originally in uh, Winnipeg, Canada. Um, and uh, when he got there, the the person who had um, hired him had been transferred, and there was nobody knew what he was doing there. So he sort of hustled and got himself a new fellowship in in Chicago, and we just ended up in the Midwest, stayed. So he was an academic. He he's a doctor. A doctor. He's a, a, a kidney specialist. And so you grew up in Chicago. No, I grew up in Minneapolis. Um, when the fellowship was over, he took a job, like as a as a physician in Minneapolis. So where did you spend your the bulk of your childhood? All of it in Minneapolis, pretty okay. much. And and where specifically? South Minneapolis, uptown, um, right off of Twenty uh, Seventh and Hennepin. Minneapolis is a pretty large. It's. I mean, there's a lot of people that live there, but for some reason, it it is kind of a afterthought of U.S. cities. Not a lot of people know about Twin Cities. A lot of people just don't know what happens in that area of the United States. What can you tell folks listening about growing up in that area, and also what is it like up there? I think people assume that it's very, very cold, and it that's is. maybe all they know about it. It is cold. I mean, the winters are are brutal. Um, what I appreciate about it um, was a ton of green space, um, independence for a child, at least in the time that I was growing up. It was like sort of a very sort of innocent time, um, and uh, there wasn't a lot of violence. And um, I enjoyed like riding my bike from lake to lake or running around. I could run around a lake at five o'clock in the morning and be, you know, completely and utterly safe, which. I mean, as a woman now, like, I don't even feel like I can do that as a grown person. Um, so that was a real privilege or, I mean, it shouldn't be a privilege, but it was in retrospect. And, um, and then uh, people live often in homes, though I think that's changed, you know, since I've been there. Uh, and that idea of um, living in a home uh, means space and space is just such a premium in New York that I, if I, it's like a very contrasty thing, like this idea of being able to barbecue or, um, cook at home, um, was like, a, it, it wasn't exclusive to my house. Like the quality of the food that was consumed in my house may have been, you know, more exotic or, or, or maybe it was, uh, a bigger priority in my home, but every, it, I mean, dinner parties, and just eating over at a friend's house was like a common thing. I remember the question like, you know, can Liz eat over? Can, you know, can anyone eat over? <laughs> and what was that cuisine? So was it Argentine? Was it a uh, hodgepodge of various flavors? Like who cooked? Your, your, which one of your parents cooked? And what is what was it traditionally consumed in your home growing up? Uh, my mom uh, was uh, the primary cook in the family. She was excellent. Uh, she was just a natural, like very intuitive uh, cook, and I think in my in I thought that I was consuming Argentine cuisine because I didn't really know that um, you know there isn't that much Argentine cuisine or like you know indigenous Argentine cuisine. So it you know I thought I was eating you know what I called Argentinian food, but I guess you know in retrospect it was um, uh, a, an amalgamation of or not even an amalgamation of it were they were in discrete dishes that sort of represented you know what you would eat in Argentina. So yes, we would eat puchero a lot in the winter time, which is sort of like you know the Argentine cocido, like our boiled dinner. Um, 
But then we also, you know, uh, ate a lot of Italian food, a lot of pasta, a lot of meat. My parents were like major meat eaters, you know, in my early childhood and then sort of veered away from that later. Is um, that gr- like a lot of grilled meats? And- a lot of grilled meats and a lot of um, different par- animal parts, like a lot of uh, sweetbreads and um, intestine and sausages and um so you a were, lot of fried meat too, like Milanesa. So you kind of you were like the weird house. Like friends came the, over and you were eating uh, awful and yes. bizarre cuts and things like that. Uh, were you aware that there was sort of a large differential between like a meatloaf tuna surprise house and your house? Or yes, you were. I was, and there was a point where, or there were times where it was embarrassing. Like a night, you know, would talk about it less. Um, but most of the time, I mean, people really enjoyed coming to our house though. I do remember, you know, one girl, like she had to go home cause it was just like so overwhelming for her that she was supposed to sleep over and she had to go home. Like the smells were too weird. I think and the, the dinner was just too much. Like it was dinner and then it was like conversation for like two hours after dinner. She probably couldn't sit still. I mean, I have no idea, but I, she like, she got picked up. I remember You've said that you knew at a very young age that you wanted to be involved in food. You uh, have always had a great love for it. Do you know, can you pinpoint specifically maybe a time in your early childhood where you thought, this is something that I would want to do for the rest of my life? As early as I can remember. I mean, honestly, I played restaurant. We had a teepee like that my grandma sent us, and we would play restaurant in the teepee. And I always remember having you know, quite a large vocabulary around food. I knew every shape of pasta and what it was called. I actually feel like I know less now than I knew then because I kind of pivoted and and went so Spain um, that I lost track of Italy a little. Um, But I, I mean, yeah, I would like present my friends with these like, you know, imaginary dishes. I did a lot of like, you know, making mortar and pestle, like berry stuff and like, the yard behind my house. I, I don't remember not wanting to, to be in this business. Did you ever take over dinner duties at a certain point or was it a side by side with your mom type of deal? She would like kind of, uh, leave us stuff to do. Like, um, she would like have us finish stuff off. Like, um, and that, that was sort of, and then, but I don't ever remember like not cooking my own eggs or not making my own hot dog or, I mean, there were obviously times when, when I, I didn't do that, but I, I just remember knowing how to do it always. I mean, it was just imparted like very, like sort of through osmosis, I guess. Was, uh, was your home bilingual or did you mostly speak did you respond in English? What was that kind of experience like? I actually think it was a lot like my kids now. Um, but for some reason, I feel like our accents were, were more intact. But um, yeah, th- we spoke Spanish at home um, and English outside of the home. And then there was, a, there was definitely a time probably after my little sister, you know, was like in first grade where um, English became the primary language. Was there ever uh, a strong desire on your part, or did you feel kind of pressure to Americanize? Was that something that happened in your community? Like, were differences celebrated, or did no one just care or pay attention? 
you know, I never felt that way. We had like these fake cousins like in uh, Rochester, Minnesota, that was just like, you know, about an hour away. And um, they had a lot of shame about being Argentine there. But I guess that's like, you know, a town. Um, sort of for deep, you. deeper, yeah. more rural living, maybe. Yeah. Minneapolis is like a very, I mean, it's a very, uh, in, it's, it's it's a very liberal place, like kind of pocket, um, bubbly kind of place. And I, you know, but it's also not very exotic. So they maybe thought that we were kind of exotic and it was sort of embraced. I actually felt more anti-Semitism than I felt um, sort of anti-Latin sentiment. Strangely. And that anti-Semitism, do you think that it was... Do you think that it was apparent across the board or was it something that you felt specifically like with your with your upbringing in your family or do you think that it was a prevalent occurrence at that time in Minneapolis? I think it was just like this sort of like late in um anti-semitism in a in a in a sort of properly nice town, like nice city. Um it's probably like that in a lot of places, but I mean, I only know that experience. I mean, for me, it was unusual. It felt very weird because I didn't feel connected to, um, I didn't have a religious upbringing. And so, but I also was not, probably because I was raised, you know, sort of, sort of with the Latin pride. Like I wasn't like, I didn't reject Judaism either. And I didn't, I didn't have anything to embrace because my parents did not educate us in the nutrition. Really, and but it was something I knew I couldn't deny about myself, and so I I think a lot of people because I was Latin American and because we spoke Spanish in my house they did not assume that I was Jewish. So I would hear things that you know were probably you know suppressed usually in the presence of Jews, and so that was um, you know that was hurtful, and also um, it was just unusual. But then. You know, there were suburbs around Minneapolis where Jews seemed to congregate and like, um, and, uh, and that felt awkward to me too, because I, you know, it's not like I was going to synagogue with, with those people. So they were my people, but they weren't my people. And it it was a little, um, I wouldn't say it was confusing for a child, but it was, it was just sort of there. When you moved to New York, how did that, how did that feel to first off kind of graduate from CIA and come to a, a very big city, much bigger than what you had lived in uh, prior. And also, you were very young, you were finding out about yourself. What was that early initial New York experience like when you moved here? Well, I moved here after having lived in Seattle. And I went to culinary school later, even though I'd been working in the field. Um, and so I felt uh, I don't know, all my life I felt like people thought I was a New Yorker. <laughs> and, and so then suddenly I, I was what they thought I was, you know, um, which, um, you know, makes sense that I was comfortable here and, and stayed here. I mean, one of the things I love about New York was just how diverse it is and how you can find everything. But I was acutely aware at the same time that New York sort of had everything but the best of nothing because I really enjoyed living in the Pacific Northwest where I thought the quality of the produce, the connection to markets was just so much stronger, especially when I got here in like, you know, the late nineties, I was just like, what is this? You guys don't have a farmer's market. You don't have, you know, so what, what people perceive now as like this exploding, like, um, 
you know, biodiversity that's going on in the Hudson Valley. Like if it was here, it was staying in the Hudson Valley. Like it was not really coming down. Like there were like five stalls at the Union Square Market and chefs were like not going there. Yeah, I mean, New York has been trailing California in that uh, in that realm for a very long time. I mean, in the 70s and 80s, you had re- relationships with farms on the West Coast because that's how you acquired your produce. And here it just kind of became en vogue to do that very recently, almost kind of to like, yes, we have a relationship with a farm. And But I felt like that know knowing that and also living in the Hudson Valley uh, before I actually came down uh, to live in the city. Uh, not just at school, but after school. I lived there a little bit. Um, I think it, it gave me a leg up. Like, I just had a reference. Like, I had a, a connection to ingredients that, you know, it was an era where people were, like, you know, making very beautiful plates. Um, and But they, you know, they weren't buying for flavor. Um, and so uh, I thought that, I think that was an advantage for me um, to have had, sort of a varied experience with food. You know, we grew food. My mom, you know, my mom grew stuff too. And uh, we shop farmer's markets in Minneapolis too. So I felt like I just, I knew how to, I knew that there was arugula that was peppery, you know, because like, my mom grew it, you know. Did you visit Spain as a kid or as a young adult for any period of time? I did. I mean, I went to Spain um, when I was uh, 17, or, yeah, um, 17, right after I graduated high school. I went backpacking and went all over, and I did go to Spain. Um, we got robbed on the way to Spain. <laughs> um, uh, A but common sp- backpacking yeah, occurrence. Yeah. Um, Spain did not impress me as much as Italy did. It was like, I actually felt like, Later on, I sort of chose between the two. But then I went and lived in Italy for a year, not working in kitchens, but really just that was the only thing I wanted to do, and I didn't know how to get in. And um, So I was like, oh, I'll take a job in Italy, and then I'll like get into the world of espresso and move to Seattle, and um, that will be my life. And, uh, and I was very disenchanted with Italy when I was there, but I also was living in Milan, um, you know, in the 90s. And so it was easy to choose Spain later on. But so what did, what did captivate you about Spain early on? Fun. They're fun. Um, you know, I'm a really serious person, and I think people don't always perceive me as being that much fun. But, but <laughs> I, I like to have fun, and I also feel like I need fun imposed on me because I'm serious. And Spaniards are fun. They like to drink. They like to eat. They like to be in the street. They live their life in the street. Not everything is like a private courtyard that you need to have access to. Like, and I love that culture. Um, whereas, like when I lived in Italy, I felt like the best things happened in people's homes, and uh, and 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 you have to have access. And so, I mean, when you make your friends and you establish your life you know, you can find, you know, this, this great joy. And obviously the food in Italy is, is spectacular, but, but that idea of like eating in the streets and everyone using restaurants, um, restaurants are like, I just feel like they play a more important role really in the culture in Spain. There's sort of a back loaded nighttime, uh, way of living in Spain that actually in New York is 
sort Similar. of comparable that, uh, I mean, I haven't been to Minneapolis and I haven't been to Seattle since I was 10, but an 11:30 dinner in Seattle seems a lot less likely than in New York city, right? Yeah. Where in Spain, many, many people sit down to dinner at 10, 11 o'clock at night, right? Yeah. They're in the street all day long. You know, the kids are running around free. It's just like, it's just a lifestyle that I, that really, um, I found, you know, really appealing and, and provocative in terms of food, especially like, I'm like, wow, like, Everyone eats in restaurants, and it it's not a class thing. Whereas, like, you have to be quite well off to eat in restaurants with any frequency in, in Italy, unless you're eating, like, on the, like, sort of food ticket, like, through work or something. Tell me about your early lifestyle in New York. Uh, you spent time at, at multiple restaurants, but you spent time at Prune. You also did some consulting work. Uh, were you... I'm curious... In the, in the beginning, were you sort of moving around to try to acquire lots of different skills in the hopes of, oh, I'm definitely opening up my own restaurant? Or was it a little less kind of planned out than that? I definitely wanted to open my own restaurant, and, and I knew, um, you know, what kind of restaurant it would be. Um, but um, I did not, I don't think I was wise enough to, like, walk around, like, trying to, like, sort of... Um, cherry pick, which I mean, actually the cherry pickers, I can't stand them now, but like, um, I didn't know enough to do that. I would go places and, and usually stay a while. Um, I'm like a firm believer that you, um, that you can, that you, that to really learn something, you need to spend some time like, um, and, um, but I did have a, a, a very strong sense of, you know, what I wanted to open and, and what it would be. And I, well, I didn't like look for skills. I did look for examples of, you know, people not, you know, I didn't want to cook like them, but I did want, I did want to have a small restaurant and having moved here from Seattle, I knew that was possible. But in New York, there were at the time only two, two or three people really doing it at, you know, in that boutique kind of way. And, you know, to me, that was Gabrielle Wiley and, uh, you know, Katie Sparks. Everything else was bigger. You so know? you're talking about uh, WD-50 mm-hmm. and Prune? Yep. And you worked at Prune? I worked at Prune. And I worked <laughs> at Quilty's, which was, like, before then, I think, that that paradigm. And then Blue Hill came the same year that uh, Edder and I met working down the street from there. And so those, those earlier experiences in New York, what are some of the takeaways of being in a New York kitchen in the 90s and much different, much different than today in a variety of ways, but that I'm sure you can articulate more clearly, but what are some of the things that were formidable that, that you still think about today? That's funny. I mean, I don't even know how to answer that question because I think that, um, you know, each restaurant is, is so different and reflects the personality and the priorities of the person who was running them. Um, I, I really wanted, you know, at the time to work at WD-50, not for the same, I mean, excuse me, at uh, 71 Clinton Fresh Food, not for the reasons that people probably think, because when that restaurant opened, it was, what was amazing about it was that it was tiny and personal 
and the food was really tasty, but it was not modern. It, I mean, to me, it was like every restaurant in Seattle, and that's why I liked it. Um, and it was in like a weird neighborhood, and you, it was just scrappy and cool, and I liked that kind of thing. And Prude had that that in common. Like, it was scrappy, you know? Like, it was like, you know, pull yourself up from, you know, by your bootstraps and kind of do what you want to do. Whereas, like, you know, Wiley seemed, you know, very interested in, like, the food and the flavors and the dishes. At Prune, it was, um, it was more about hospitality. Like, it was, it was more of a, um, a sort of art directed, you know, from the soundtrack to the cocktail to the, you know, it was, there was a real intentional, um, desire to like put the customer in a very specific aesthetic place. Um, and then, uh, yeah. Where did you meet your <laughs> husband? I met him at Megas, a Spanish restaurant, uh, that was, uh, down in, uh, I don't know, is it called something square? No, it's like over on Hudson street where the Jacques Torres is now. And so you, you were immediately working together. Mm-hmm. What was, what were your roles at the restaurant at that time? Were you both like cooking on the line or? Edder, Edder, my husband's name is Edder. He was, um, he was the sous chef and he was brought over, um, by the chef from Spain to open the restaurant. And, um, I took a job because I wanted to go cook at Il Bouilly. And I thought if I had some like Spanish restaurant experience under my belt, um, I might, uh, get to go work there. And I had heard that the chef, uh, had, had worked there, which was not true, but it, I don't know. It was all, it all worked out nicely. So that was your first time working at a restaurant that served Spanish cuisine? Yes. And what was that experience like when you reflect on that that was the first spot and now you own multiple restaurants that serve that type of cuisine? Well, I mean, I have always looked at the restaurants that I worked at very critically, which is probably why I'm not, I was never the most loved employee. Um, And so I didn't understand, I understood the restaurant because it was like a very unusual restaurant. It was supposed to be Basque, but it had a Galician name. And, um, and it had all these dishes that like weren't particularly Basque. Um, and I found that frustrating. Like I, I really like to tell stories and through food and I just couldn't find a cohesive thread in that restaurant, but because I'm Argentine and there's a lot of Basques there and a lot of Gallegos there and, um, there's not a cohesive necessarily Argentine culture. I felt like I really knew how to express like the priorities of the restaurant. So in that regard, I was a great employee because I understood that it was really sort of a Spanish speaking Spanish restaurant. But, um, but I, I was like, where are the tapas? You know, like why is this place so serious or fine? You know, and also I felt that in its seriousness, it was, it felt kind of retro. Like it didn't feel current and um but I learned a lot I learned a lot and I learned to be fast I remember when I got to prune Gabrielle was like you're fast and I've subsequently become very slow (laughs) 
but I was fast then. Like I could butcher fish, I could bone out hams because there was no boneless ham. You know, I was, I was fast. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk more uh, about your restaurants in New York City. Stick with us. about what it takes to swim a coastline longer than the entire eastern seaboard and leap tall waterfalls in a single bound. What does it take to survive 200 feet deep in icy saltwater? What would you be made of? Wild Alaska seafood is made of tight muscle mass, long chain omega-3s, and incredible micronutrients. It matters where your food comes from. Experience the flavor of the fittest in every bite and enjoy food the way nature intended. Alaska seafood, wild, natural, and sustainable. Ask for Alaska on the menu, grocery store, or smart device. For more information, visit wildalaskaseafood.com. I'm Moxie Rosenblum. My dad, Harry Rosenblum, hosts Feast Your Ears on Heritage Radio Network. Right now, HRN is having a summer membership drive. Becoming a member is so easy, and you'll help support shows like my dad's. You can sign up for a one-time donation or become a monthly sustaining member by visiting heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Let's keep food radio on the airwaves this summer. Welcome back to The Line. Before we jump back into it, just a quick note on our annual Summer Fun Drive. Uh, we're raising $25,000 before July 31st. So how can you help us raise this money? A couple of ways. You could set up a monthly recurring donation and support HRN through the year for just $5 a month, which is an individual membership. Or for $10 a month, you can get a household membership. Please help us making sure that Heritage Radio has a bright future here for a very long time. Go to heritageradionetwork.org forward slash donate. And now we're going to jump back into it with Chef Alex Reich. She has cooked previously in the kitchens of Megas, Prune, and Tia Pol, where she was a partner. Along with her husband, Ader Montero, she opened El Quinto Pino in 2007. They have two other additional restaurants, Chiquito and also Lavara in Brooklyn's Cobble Hill, which holds a Michelin star. So how did the partnership with Eder come to be? How did you say to each other, were you, a, were you a couple? Were you a partnership professionally at that point only? And how did you come to open up your first restaurant together with him? Well, um, I actually, um, I took the job and I don't know. I, it sounds like sort of silly to say, but I just sort of like fell madly in love with him. I wouldn't go so far as to say at first sight. But, like, just right away. Um, I, does that happen to people still? I, I mean, it, it happened to me. I feel really lucky that it happened to me. Um, but um, 
I didn't really know a lot about him. And um, I guess we started working together in October. And by, by January, we were a couple, but quietly, quietly. Um, and then uh, he, I went to Prune and he went to Nobu. Um, and we just kept sort of like planning this tapas restaurant that we were going to open. Um, and funnily, we wanted it to be in Chelsea because that was where sort of all the Spanish, um, retro restaurants were like, I was in love with the Alfaro space. That was like my dream. Um, and, um, and then Edder was going to go work for Grey Coons, who was opening up in the, uh, Time Warner Center. And, um, I, I was then working at a tasting room, the little one, um, right next door to Prune. Uh, it was just like me and Paul Carmichael and, you know, still, I think Paul wanted to open something. I wanted to open something. And then, um, but I had these little consulting jobs where I would, uh, set up electric kitchens for other people in, um, and staff them. And so a lot of times I would look to see who was opening restaurants so that I could either consult at them or, um, or see who was hiring so that I could place people that I had placed that wanted to move from one place to another. And, um, and I came across this listing that was like, you know, looking, you know, for, for a chef. And I don't know why I opened it up because of this consulting thing that I was doing, but it turned out being a Spanish restaurant. I was like, I'm so going to go look into this. Um, and that was where, that's how I met my partners um, at Tia, which unfortunately, you know, ended really horribly, but uh, it did launch my career. And Edder came on to work with me there because Gray was not uh, opening. It was taking forever. And finally, I was just like, just come with me. And, and we opened it together. And so when you went to launch uh, your own restaurant away from Tia Pole, which was, uh, which was in 2007. Well, actually, no, it was 2008 because that was uh, with, with my partners um, there. I opened up uh, El Quinto Pino. And then after our lawsuit was over, I got El Quinto Pino back. Okay. Um, so, so El Quinto Pino did open in 2007. And then we were actually not making food there for a couple of years. So if it really sucked, I'm sorry, but it's good now. Um, and then, um, in the meantime, we opened up, uh, Chiquito and had a baby and, uh, settled a really ugly lawsuit. Well, I'm, what I'm actually curious about is, is the true financials of opening your own restaurant. So you had some partners at the other one and then you did Chiquito. How did you go about, did you put a deck together? Did you fundraise from friends and family? Did you get a bank loan? Like what were the steps that you took to get Chiquito open, which, at that time was your first you and eaters first restaurant with you as the as yeah. the partners together right yes but we were making a lot of money <laughs> that's why you know you don't get in a lawsuit with your partners unless somebody wants to be richer than they are you know nobody's going to fight over a failing business mm-hmm. um so we were making a lot of money um uh relative to what we thought was money you know when you know I made three dollars an hour basically until I made three hundred dollars. You know, you know, it's not really that. I yeah. don't know what I ever made. I never did that calculation. I don't do this for money, um, though. I find I need more and more of it as my my kids get older. Um, but uh, but no, we were we cash flowed. 
that and until we didn't until we were just like bleeding money trying to defend ourselves um and so uh we you know chiquito was supposed to be edder's restaurant <laughs> and you know it was the basque restaurant we always had had a plan of going from general to particular you know the first restaurant was tapas a road trip that was our idea not mario batali's and um and then it was standing up and eating and that's what okinda pino was about and um and then Chiquito was supposed to be the Basque restaurant. And we were like, well, it's up in, you know, a, a Catalan restaurant. You know, it was supposed to be about celebrating the multi-regional, independent, multi-regional um, cuisines of Spain. Um, and so, yeah, uh, you know, Tia, we, all, we each pitched in $25,000. <laughs> so nothing. Um, and, you know, that's a warning. It's very easy to get into business with people, but it is not so easy to get out. Um, even when you have a shareholders agreement because, you know, it's hard. Anyways, um, and then um, I feel like El Quinto Pino, we all just cash flowed it. Um, and then everything fell apart, like sort of in the midst of that. Um, and then uh, at our, yeah, we just, did, we just did Chiquito on our own. We don't have any partners at in, any of them now. At, n- at none of them? No. And But we also opened very small inexpensive restaurants. We don't have fancy plates or anything, you know. This leads me to my next question, which is the division of the partnership you have with your husband. You currently have three restaurants in your in your group. Mm-hmm. And was there a long discussion about which parts would be whose responsibility? Is it full-on collaboration down the board? And over time, now that you have had multiple spots open for for a very long time, have things shifted at all? Like someone's in the kitchen more, someone's on the back end more. Is that how's that worked? Yeah, I mean, organically and um, sometimes happily and sometimes unhappily. I mean, I I have the the best job for me, um, which is uh, storytelling and recipe building and all that stuff. Um, and, um, and then doing this, like supporting the restaurant, um, also publicly a lot. Um, and Adder does a lot of day-to-day operations. He fixes a lot of stuff. I mean, when you have a small restaurant, you're like a plumber and electrician. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty handy on the electrical side too, not on the plumbing side. Um, and, um, he has less fun than I do, I would say. And, I mean, that, you know, that's something I would, I would love to, to see change. But I think we both do what we're good at, and we, and we do do what we enjoy. Like, I think there are part. he likes to learn new skills, and, um, and he's very detail-oriented. I'm a little dreamier and less reliable. Um, but uh, but I, it is always, it's sort of always shifting, and I think... Uh, it's not the most balanced right now. Like we should probably uh, look at it and see how we want to live our lives. And uh, I should do some things I don't like more and he should do some things that he likes more. I want to stay in this realm based on organization and leadership of, of multiple restaurants. You've touched on the fact that there is sort of a constant 
leveling or lack of leveling when you have partners and even when they're not a spouse, if they might be a family member or not, or just your business partner, there's a constant sort of daily renegotiation about, well, this thing needs fixing. Are you going to do that? Am I going to do that? But you have multiple locations and they're not all on the same block. They're not all in the same borough. So how over the last couple years uh, have you have you put in any systems that you can share with listeners that have helped you be successful across multiple restaurants uh, when obviously even both of you can't necessarily cover all three of them in the same service? That's an impossibility. I wish that um, I wish that I could say yes. Um, I. As I understood this business when I got into it, and it has changed a lot in all respects, was that it was like a very hands-on, nuts and bolts business that you had to suffer a lot to do it. Um, and we still do it that way. I mean, uh, we go to every restaurant every day, um, but obviously you can't be at two places at once. So in the mornings we go to Brooklyn where we have a restaurant and a half. We're building out a little coffee shop that we had that's now going to be a fish place um, next door to La Barra. And having those two close together is definitely helpful. And then um, then we come to Chelsea in the afternoon, and often one of us will stay at night. Um, when we opened La Barra, though, we very intentionally, and I have to say in this we did a good job, um, decided that we were not going to be there at night. Um, that 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 would be the morning stop and that uh, we would be more in Chelsea at night. And, um, you know, La Barra is the darling. Everyone <laughs> loves it the most. Um, so uh, we must have, we must have done uh, something, something right there. I mean, we have, we have good systems for cooking. I don't know that we have great systems for like, you know, management, but I think, and we have, and we're, and we hire like really good people. When I say good people, I mean good people. Like they're not always good cooks. We'll teach them to cook. Um, but they're just good people. And like, you know, people that we like and that, that, that we want to, you know, share stuff with or that we trust. Um, so, I mean, that's been, that's been good. Like we don't hire assholes. <laughs> Because that's a privilege you have, you know, like when you own your own restaurant, you can work with who you want to work with. The economics of this industry are changing dramatically. Uh, It's becoming increasingly more expensive to have staff from from a salaried and from an hourly perspective as well. Diners' expectations have shifted uh, often at the lower end price point, they're expecting more for less. And then they're, you know, those same diners are okay spending a $300 tasting menu, but they want a $7 sandwich. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, You have uh, restaurants. Well, one has a Michelin star, but they're all in a casual esque price point. Mm -hmm. I'm curious about how your, what are your thoughts on just the general dining trends at price point? And what is, what are your concerns right now with three restaurants as uh, minimum wage is about to hit 15 on December 31st and you have to hire 
multiple people across multiple locations. How how Um, does that affect your day to day? It affects us a lot. I mean, um, I don't think that there's any cook who's been through, you know, what Ed and I have been through um, or what you've been through who doesn't believe in increasing the minimum wage. Um, It's unfortunate, I think, you know, from a cook's perspective that that the minimum wage uh, is also being applied to tipped workers um, because um, while we would like to see everybody, you know, rise, like um, the tipped workers in in certain places, like in restaurants like ours, they they make a good living. And so if that's going to mean that people become sort of untipped um, workers to mitigate that problem, which is the choice a lot of restaurants are, are making, the restaurants that have that can make that choice, they're restaurants that have already been. They have real estate already. I mean, they have foot traffic. They already have established like an identity and a location where they can afford to do that. I mean, if you look at who is doing it and where they're located, they either have a very high average cover. Um, or they're doing a tremendous amount of volume. And um, the way that, that we, the pockets that we have chosen to open our restaurants in, where they were intentionally neighborhood restaurants. And so they, they don't have that criteria, and they're the kinds of restaurants that, um, without tipping, you know, could potentially fail. Like, that's just the reality. I mean, um, and we see restaurants closing every day. What concerns me the most, I mean, obviously selfishly, I would love to see my restaurants, you know, persist. Um, I'm a creative person and I could probably open up a different kind of restaurant, but, uh, but I hate the idea that we, you know, we all talk about bringing dignity to the workplace. And then there's something to me that's super undignified about designing a restaurant, not around people intentionally because we can't afford labor like I feel like the whole system is broken from the ground up and to just change one chip um, it shows a lack of like commitment and understanding to the whole industry and I I do worry that there's only going to be one type of restaurant left and it's going to cost $30 to get so much less than your $30. You know, and these people who are very price sensitive or whatever, like pretty soon your hamburger is going to cost $30 and it's going to come with no service. And is that how we want to live? Like, is that what we want restaurants to give us? To how is that how we feel like our life is enhanced by a restaurant? Or is it just a food delivery system of a different elk? I mean, those are questions. Those are questions for society. Like, I, they're not questions that I'm going to answer. But as a romantic food person in love with restaurants, I find it depressing. <laughs> I do, removing, you know. And I removing and I, the humanity and the hospitality aspect. Yeah, of and it. I also think that you know, removing all the women-owned restaurants because that's you know, the women and minorities have participated in the restaurant. Business, you know, the people who are purporting to try to protect us are actually going to um, be the end of us, I think, because those are the, exactly the categories of restaurants that are going to disappear. Small places that yeah. have been on a side street. For right. And I don't think that's the intention. So if that's not the intention, then the problem needs to be looked at in a much m- sort of more 
um, it's just a hard, these are hard problems and they're going to have complex solutions, not one easy solution. You know, that's the, you know, we have a farming issue. We have food distribution issues. You know, we have labor issues. We have housing issues. Those are all related and connected to each other. You've just articulated many of the most difficult aspects of having a business and you have three active locations and you're currently swapping, uh, was it Tacoa? Is that mm-hmm. how I pronounce yeah. it? Into your, it was a coffee shop and you're swapping it into your fourth location. So yes. my question is, uh, in the face of all these issues and you have young children and a generally a very busy life, you continue to expand, uh, why do you continue to expand? And also, how many more potential spots do you and your husband think you may want, want to open? I think the way that we open in the future will probably be different. Um, and um, I have a lot of ideas, and I like to see them expressed. But the, you know, the reality is that maintaining a restaurant is much harder I don't want to say it's harder than opening one, but it's, it is harder than opening one. And, um, and so I have no idea, um, you know, what our future is. I really don't. It, I'm sure they're in that way. Maybe I'm a little, I, I, I never think I have anything in common with millennials, but I, but then maybe in that way I am like, I don't know what my profession is going to be. Maybe I'll be consulting, um, again, um, in the future. I still do some, <clears throat> But maybe that will be my primary job uh, or maybe a hotel or maybe in another city or state. Um, I'm not sure uh, what it what it will look like uh, with regard to the corner. Like, that's just how I want to eat. And I had this beautiful location that I did feel strongly about, but I had a concept I did not feel strongly about, um, especially once I looked into it or, you know, I lived it and I realized that to, you know, to continue with that concept, I would have to outsource everything and not have cooks. Like it just, I found, you know, it was part of the conversation we were having earlier. Like I could have kept running the coffee shop, but just to employ people. Um, and, um, so I'm, I'm excited to actually make food and pay cooks as opposed to, um, you know, buy a lot of coffee from a coffee company. And when might that project be opening, the newest one that you're working on next to Lavara? I think it's going to be August. Um, that's our plan. And it'll be some variation of a sit-down yeah, restaurant? Yeah, very much a restaurant. Oh, cool. I can't, I, yeah, but, it, but we, have, we have designed it um, to reduce labor. We definitely have, you know, like... Um, it's two cooks, um, and um, and a bartender and a server, and then the, you know, I mean, just since you asked, that um, it has a, it's not sushi like, because uh, we're actually cooking a lot of food and we're not serving a lot of raw food, but there is a window into the kitchen where the cooks will be serving the people who are directly in front of them as well as the people who are a little bit further away. All the seating is high. Um, so I'm hoping um, it's really going to be cute. I, I'm excited about it. I haven't totally The cooks figured. will drop the food? 
the cooks will drop the food at the people that are closest to them. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if they're going to walk it out or if there's going to end up being a runner as well, but they're definitely participating in service. Tell everyone where they can find uh, your restaurants. You have you have multiple, but if you can just quickly list the names and addresses of them where they can find you. Yeah, Chiquito and Okita Pino um, are both in Chelsea, West Chelsea. Um, they're on that the corridor of Ninth Avenue uh, between between Twenty Fourth and Twenty Fifth Street is Chiquito. It's in like a little strip mall, um, and then um, El Quinto Pino is uh, on Twenty Fourth Street across from London Terrace. If you know that area, and then um, La Barra and the soon to be named Fish Place, Fishery. That's what it is. It's a fishery. Um, are on Clinton Street. Um, at Veranda Place, so between Warren and Congress in Cobble Hill. Chef, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for asking such good questions. You can listen to this episode and all the other episodes by going to heritageradionetwork.org and join us every Tuesday for another live episode of The Line at 11 a.m. here on Heritage Radio. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. 